0: I'm Josh Hammer, and welcome back to American Trail, your daily podcast for all of your hard-hitting, digestible, and bite-sized legal news of the day. So great to be back here in the saddle with you. I enjoyed my time up in Washington, D.C. yesterday for the CPAC conference. Got back home to Florida late last night. going to talk about a Florida legal issue for you a little bit later in the episode for today's deep dive. But for now, let's take a look at what's trending and go around the horn here. Not a ton happening necessarily, specifically over the past 24 hours or so when it comes to Donald Trump's legal cases. Up at the U.S. Supreme Court, there is going to be a conference. The justices regularly have these scheduled conferences where they discuss cases and they vote on petitions for cert to go ahead and, and review the cases there. There's also going to be a An order list released from the Supreme Court on Monday morning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Naturally, I think many of us are wondering whether any of this is going to entail Donald Trump's two cases that are currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. You have the substantive case that is pending, the Trump versus Anderson case, the appeal out of Colorado that was argued before the court there about two weeks ago or so from Trump's exceptional attorney, Jonathan Mitchell. And the other case pending before the court is not a case that is there on the substantive merits, but one that is there where the justices are reviewing whether to grant or deny a stay. This is the D.C. Circuit case, the Jack Smith federal prosecution there, as it comes to the question of presidential immunity or lack thereof, and whether that protects Donald Trump from federal prosecution in the Jack Smith case. So naturally, I think many of us are starting to, wonder when these rulings are going to come down here. Now, again, on the, as we mentioned on the show, on the ballot access case, on the Trump versus Anderson case, the reason that I continue to think that this thing is going to come down sooner rather than later is, one, we are rapidly getting further and further into the actual primary calendar. So South Carolina is having its primary tomorrow, this Saturday. On Tuesday, you have the state of Michigan, which is having its, its presidential primary, and then we're rapidly getting closer and closer to Super Tuesday coming up here in March. You would let, you would think that the Supreme Court is going to want to get this thing out of the way and issue its decision that will affect ballot access, presumably across the whole country. They're going to want to get that ruling in place at, at a bare minimum before Super Tuesday. I, and then looking at the legal calendar again, As I've mentioned here, Illinois is the third state after Colorado and Maine that is having its own debate over applying Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the so-called Insurrection Clause, and seeing whether Donald Trump is going to actually be removed from the ballot there in the land of Lincoln, Illinois, how far they have fallen. It's really now the land of Mike Madigan in most recent decades. But in any event, this Wednesday, February 28th, According to my legal calendar, a state circuit court there in Illinois is expected to issue a written decision when it comes to the 14th Amendment Section 3 challenge for Donald Trump. So I continue to think that this thing, this Trump versus Anderson decision, when it comes to the question of whether Trump is disqualified from the ballot because he aided or abetted a so-called insurrection, I think that that decision is going to come sooner rather than later. Very difficult to make an actual prediction, but... I have to think it's coming up here within the next week, week and a half or so. And then when it comes to Trump's other D.C. case, the Jack Smith federal prosecution case, I have to think that this court's going to rule sooner rather than later as well when it comes to their decision as to whether to grant or deny a stay for Trump's claim of presidential immunity, and then the corollary decision, which is whether to actually expedite this granting to the Supreme Court And hear this case on the actual substantive constitutional question, which is whether presidential immunity would preclude Jack Smith's sprawling prosecution on the grounds that Donald Trump, quote-unquote, overturned the election. It's important to bear in mind that as the Georgia case is collapsing before our eyes— And there's going to be some more upcoming hearings in Judge Scott McAfee's Fulton County, Georgia courtroom this coming week. But it's important to bear in mind that as this case continues to implode, as it gets ever more likely that Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade are going to have to move off this case, as it gets ever more likely that that case is going to have to move out of the deep blue jurisdiction of Fulton County, where the city of Atlanta is, getting us exponentially exponentially likelier to a scenario where you get a hung jury once you start moving that possible prosecution outside of deep blue Fulton County. It's very important to bear in mind that as this is all going on, the Biden regime, the Biden Merrick Garland DNC apparatus is only going to double and triple down when it comes to that Jack Smith prosecution in Washington, D.C. That is their crown jewel. That is unequivocally the crown jewel of the Democrat media complex of the sprawling lawfare apparatus right now. It is actually the Alvin Bragg case, the hush money payment case involving Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels. That is actually the case in New York City. That's the criminal prosecution that is most likely to reach the finish line before the November 2024 general election. That is the most likely just looking on the actual calendar and what kind of delay, dilatory motions there might be. Just as a a pure matter of the timeline, To me, that is the one that is clearly most likely to actually result in a ruling before November. And given the fact that this is New York City, given the nature of the left-wing jury pool there, no matter how legally frivolous the case may be, probably going to end up being a a guilty verdict, query, query how much that verdict would even matter given how farcical that particular case is. But notwithstanding that, it really is this Jack Smith DC case that is the crown crown jewel of the Biden regime right now. So all eyes are on the Supreme Court when it comes to Donald Trump's two cases, the ballot access case on the substantive question of immunity, or excuse me, excuse me, on on the substantive question of insurrection ballot access as well as the procedural question when it comes to the possible stay of presidential immunity in the jack smith federal probe there in washington dc one other quick case at the supreme court speaking in the supreme court that i will know before moving on to today's deep dive there was a big oral argument at the supreme court on wednesday this wednesday the case is called ohio versus epa you know it seems like Every few years, you get a case that is styled at the Supreme Court, insert red state here versus EPA. So two terms ago, it was West Virginia. West Virginia had a major challenge at the EPA pertaining to the so-called major questions doctrine, which is a doctrine of substantive administrative law when it comes to the Supreme Court. That was a ruling that came out generally in a way that most conservatives Most conservatives and libertarians, for that matter, would would agree with. Similar issue here in Ohio versus EPA, it has to do with a rule that the EPA has promulgated known as the quote-unquote Good Neighbor Plan. It basically has to do with where you have downstream environmental pollution where there are state borders involved. So this necessarily is going to involve interstate commerce or the various other instrumentalities and means of interstate relations which makes it the jurisdiction of the federal government under a basic reading of the Commerce Clause when it comes to congressional legislative power, as well as judicial review. By all accounts, my understanding as to how this oral argument went is that it went in a generally predicted direction, which is where you had a lot of conservative justices who were fairly skeptical of the EPA's ability to promulgate a rule of this nature there. We will see what that ultimate ruling entails Bear in mind that this is also the term, this is also the Supreme Court term where we have Chevron deference being challenged. The very important longstanding administrative law doctrine of Chevron deference which basically grants administrative agencies huge, huge power to interpret laws and the it essentially commands judges to defer to agencies quote-unquote reasonable interpretations of congressional statutes which many of us have argued has the effect of telling judges not to engage in the very judicial review that they are sworn to do as a basic function of what, quote-unquote, the judicial power of the Constitution speaks. It's a doctrine that has divided conservatives for a long time. Most have really firmly come down on the side of opposing Chevron deference. I believe that that is correct. So, some interesting administrative law, environmental cases, those two buckets of law oftentimes go hand in hand because when you're dealing with environmental overreach, you're typically dealing with the EPA there. So a couple of interesting cases for you coming down the pipeline when it comes to some non-Trump legal stuff, both this administrative law case of Chevron deference and also the Ohio versus EPA case when it comes to the so-called good neighbor Plan. Let's go to today's deep dive, which I teased earlier I mentioned that I was going to talk a little bit about something happening in my state, the state of Florida, and we are going to talk a little bit about a piece of legislation currently pending here in Florida for today's deep dive. So, defamation. Defamation is an interesting area of the law is an, is is an underdiscussed, one might even argue underappreciated area of the law. So, defamation is a tort. Defamation is a common law tort. It, in that respect, it is no different than battery, assault, trespass, false imprisonment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, IIED as the lawyers call it. Defamation is no different than any of these other torts as those torts developed at English common law in the centuries before the United States of America was even founded. To kind of go back to law school 101, as every first-year law student learns in their tort class, you have the various elements that make a tort claim. You have a a duty. We we have to have a duty between one actor and another actor. Then you have to have a breach of that duty. Then there has to be causation where you can show that the aggrieving actor actually caused the harm to the aggrieved actor. And then you need damages. Then you need some actual demonstration of damages on the part of the wronged, harmed, or or aggrieved actor there as well. And tort claims are civil suits, a a very rough way to think about a tort claim, and this is not a legal definition, this is just me spouting off and giving you a, a rough way to think about it. But a rough way to think about a tort claim is that it is a Scenario in which a party is wronged, but the nature of the wrongness does not rise to the level of a criminal offense for which the state necessarily needs to then use resources to pursue a prosecution. So these tort claims are situations where a party is wronged, but it does not rise to the level of a rape, a homicide Uh, carjacking or or some sort of other violent crime that the state must muster up the resources and then prosecute to the best of its ability, or actually not the best of its ability in the case all too often these days for Soros-funded prosecutors all across the country. In any event, I digress. Defamation was part of the English common law, and as such, it was adopted at the time of the American founding. 49 of the 50 states in America today have fully adopted the English common law into their substantive law. The only state that has not done so is the interesting state of Louisiana, which is unique in America's legal system. It's unique in many ways, actually, Louisiana, because it is not actually downstream of the English common law tradition. Louisiana has this francophilic European continental historical tint to it, With all the Cajun influence, the Creole influence, Louisiana historically is much more Catholic than most of the rest of of America, which, which is largely Protestant, at least in most states there. And interestingly, when it comes to Louisiana, Louisiana has actually adopted at the state level the civil law, civil law, which is totally different than the English common law. You know, fun aside, and then I'll get back to what we're talking about here. I remember back when I was clerking. On the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal appeals court that deals with Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, and for the most part, when you're when you're clerking on a federal appellate court, you're going to have federal questions come before your docket. You're going to have federal statutes. You're going to have federal constitutional questions, but. Every so often, you, you will have state law involved because there's something known as diversity jurisdiction, which is even when there is a state law and not a federal law involved there, that case can still make it into federal court if the parties, the plaintiff and the defendant, are actually from different states. That's so-called diversity jurisdiction. The theory for diversity jurisdiction back at the time of the American founding was that it would be a very biased judge and jury pool. It would be a provincial jury pool if you have these two litigants in a state court where one of them is from out of state. So that was kind of the idea, was trying to avoid bias. In any event, I remember dealing with one state law case involving maritime law in Louisiana, and... Oh my god. I mean, I remember having to, to 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 try to learn all of these terms, these typically French-sounding legal terms, that I was I was just totally unfamiliar with. I mean, it's 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 quite literally a whole different language there in Louisiana when it comes to the European continental civil law as opposed to the English common law. But 49 of the 50 states in America today have adopted the common law. And in theory, at least in theory, that very much includes the common law of defamation. Defamation claims were ubiquitous at the time of the American founding. There were lots and lots of them filed in America's first two-party system. You had the Federalist Party. That was the party of George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. They tended to be a little less free speech absolutist, you might say, correctly so, in my judgment. They were the ones who were most encouraging of Defamation litigation when it came, when it comes to the need to protect against reputational harm, and that people could then sue, could sue media organizations, could sue newspapers, could sue those who who wrong them, who lie about them in public. There, this was once considered a very conservative idea: the I, idea of of defamation law, the idea of protecting one's reputation against those actors who would seek to to harm that reputation. It was Abraham Lincoln himself who famously said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that what is a man if he does not have his reputation? Uh, That's not the exact quote, it's a paraphrase, but that very much is a Lincolnian sentiment there, we might say. At some point in the 20th century, as conservatives started to liberalize a little bit and allow libertarian and classical liberal influence to seep into their thinking, they started to shift when it comes to defamation law. And... This leads us to a 1960s era US Supreme Court case called New York Times versus Sullivan, which was a landmark case, a legally incorrect case, even though it was decided by an effectively unanimous court in 1964, where they essentially watered down, they dramatically watered down the standard for defamation when it comes to public officials. And then it was extended to public figures, which can include a lot of people. So to to break that down, if you are a public official, and again, was later extended to be also public figures, then you can't sue a media defamation, or you can't sue a media organization for defamation unless you can prove, and this is the evidentiary standard, unless you can prove that the organization engaged in quote-unquote actual malice. That is the term that is associated with the Sullivan ruling from the Supreme Court in 1964, the, de- the defendant is going to have to show that a statement made was false or recklessly disregarded whether the statement might be false. Now, if you want to go back to your Constitution and reread the First Amendment, you will know that that is nowhere in there. That is nowhere in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It's not. It's totally made up. It's a garbage decision, and it should be treated that way. And many great judicial conservatives over the past 50 years or so have called it a garbage decision. Chief Justice William Rehnquist, the late great, if I'm not mistaken, was... Deeply skeptical of New York Times versus Sullivan. Anthony Scalia was famously skeptical of it. Justice Clarence Thomas as well. In a 2019 case, a case involving Bill Cosby, actually, Justice Thomas explicitly called for New York Times versus Sullivan to be overruled. And he's correct to do so. I I have written about this numerous times over the years. Sullivan was a garbage case that should be overturned. Fast forward a little bit, and as the conservative movement started to deliberalize, prudentially and prophylactically, I might say, over the past eight, nine years or so, largely associated with the era of Donald Trump, you know, it was in 2016 on the campaign trail, I remember where Donald Trump campaigned on, quote, opening up the libel laws, you know, libel and slander being the two subsidiaries to defamation, whether it deals with written or spoken word, that's libel and slander there. And this freaked out a lot of libertarians, a lot of classical liberals, oh my God, is he trying to crack down on free speech, trying to open up the libel laws? I remember this like it was yesterday. And no, he wasn't. He was trying to recover, actually, whether he realized it or not, whether it was from principle or substance or whether it was just a prudential thing that he was saying. He, he was actually trying to recover a more profoundly conservative view of protecting reputational harm in the English common law tradition against those malicious media actors who seek to to undermine it. So all of that is context for this debate now happening in the state of Florida, where you have for the second straight year a piece of legislation that is trying to come out there that would really try to get rid of, or at least challenge, the actual malice standard when it comes to defamation. It's really trying to tee up a direct constitutional challenge in all likelihood to try to get the New York Times versus Sullivan case from 1964 overruled. So this is a bill in the Florida House called HB 757. Its companion bill in the Florida Senate is SB 1780, It's being led by a Republican from Pensacola by the name of Representative Alex Andrade. And the bill would assume that media outlets engage in, quote, actual malice if they publish false statements given by anonymous sources. So if you have published something on an anonymous source, then you have have to overcome what lawyers refer to as a rebuttable presumption. Of actual malice. You would have to then overcome that presumption in order to avoid being found liable in those cases involving anonymous sources. This bill just passed out of the Florida committee, out of the Florida House Judiciary Committee on a party line vote by a 14 to 7 vote there, almost exclusively along party lines. But interestingly, you've had a lot of prominent conservatives speak up against it. You've had folks like my friend Stephen Miller, the Trump advisor, you've had a lot of others. I think Dan Bongino is, is, is opposed to it. The reality is that there are a lot of us who live in Florida who operate in the conservative media world. I just mentioned Dan Bongino. There's me. There's Buck Sexton. There's Dave Rubin. I could go on and on, but there's, there, there's a lot of us. Ben Shapiro, of course. There, there are many of us who live here in the state of Florida. And I, I, I'm fully sympathetic to that. I, I, I have a personal stake in it. I mean, I don't want to be dragged to court any more than anyone else does. I, I, I totally, totally get it. On the other hand, what the bill is trying to achieve here, which is realigning defamation law, ideally, with what it is supposed to be in our system of government and in our broader Anglo-American legal tradition, is an absolutely noble cause. And it is a a noble and, and righteous cause there. But you have many people, even on the right, who are really, really concerned about this and for understandable reasons, which is that you probably just will have a lot of leftists who will start filing suit, and you'll have forum shopping and venue shopping and leftist jury pools and things like that, right? So I, I totally understand it. My very simple proposal to try to fix this, because my main concern is that I see a lot of conservatives sounding frankly like liberals, liberals in the true sense of the word liberal, not progressive, not leftist, but liberal, when it comes to civil libertarianism, when it comes to free speech absolutism, you know, it's not, quote-unquote, speech in our tradition to lie about someone maliciously or intentionally. That is not speech. So I see a lot of people having an incorrect substantive view of what, quote-unquote, speech means in the broader Anglo-American tradition, and my primary concern is I see a lot of conservatives, frankly, sounding like liberals. So my very, very simple proposal here, my one-stop-shop heuristic to try to bridge this divide and solve this dilemma when it comes to Florida's defamation law is why don't the drafters of this legislation put in a very simple provision that would require that all lawsuits that proceed in this manner must necessarily be against a journalist who is employed by a media organization that has above X employees call it 300, 500, whatever it is. If you want to make sure that you're targeting the right people, that you're targeting the Miami Herald, the Tampa Bay Times, the Orlando Sentinel, if you want to make sure that you are targeting the right actors here, then why don't you do something as simple as that? I totally, totally understand, and obviously, I sympathize with the idea that I don't want me dragged into court any more than any of these other folks do. Trust me, I really, really don't. I have way more important things going on in my life, but... This is a noble idea. Florida is a red state leader right now. It is a good venue in theory to try to lead this long overdue charge to overturn New York Times versus Sullivan. Why don't the drafters of the legislation just put in express provisions limiting this to massive media organizations that would limit the lawsuits to the major newspapers and things like that, the conservative influencers, our ecosystem, we would be off the hook there. I fail to see how that would not probably single-handedly solve a problem there. I look forward to this problem hopefully being solved because, again, it's important to get a better, more robust, more traditional conception of defamation law back into our legal and political regime.